And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am, as always, your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to our episode today. I hope everyone enjoyed our previous episode where we took a look at uh, Ryga, God of the Monsters, a very uh, unusual, uh, I guess that's probably the best word, Daikaiju film. Uh, we're, uh, we're not looking at a film today. Today we are instead taking a look at the next two episodes of the classic uh, tokusatsu series Ultraman, looking at episodes 26 and 27, introducing the ancient monster Gomera, and very much looking forward to talking about the debut of this uh, seminal uh, member of the uh, pantheon of uh, Ultra Kaiju. Uh, but first, before we get into that, a couple of news and notes. Uh, well, you all out there, you may have noticed some changes here at Earth Destruction Directive with our last episode. So I've been doing this show pretty much the same way for more than 10 years at this point. And, you know, I liked the way I did the show. Uh, but over the last year or so, I've been thinking about ways to improve or try new things. Now, in that same time frame, I've been able to interact with different parts of the Daikaiju fandom that I had not necessarily been talking to previously. Podcasters, YouTubers, authors, and get some different perspectives on how they present their content and how their audiences consume that content. So, as I was putting together the last episode, I decided to try some changes to the show, do things a little differently, generally just kind of refresh our Destruction Directive. So I hope everyone enjoys the changes, and you know, if you have thoughts or comments, please, please email me, EarthDestructionDirective at yahoo.com, or you can reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter, and uh, you know, just give me any type of feedback, constructive criticism that you have. You know, I really just, you know, want to just shake things up a little bit. Uh, now, one other new change. You can also now find the show on YouTube. That's right. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive on YouTube and you'll find us there. You know, uh, a subscribe, hitting that subscribe button would definitely be appreciated. Um, the other thing I know that's new also is our Two True Freaks website. And the new Two True Freaks website, it, it's a wonderful site. It's got a lot more functionality than the previous site. However, there are still some growing pains, and that primarily deals with the RSS feeds. I know my RSS feeds, as of this recording, are really kind of, uh, they're not in good shape. And so that I am working with our 2TrueFreaks.com webmaster, and we have a path forward. I need to start implementing that. So hopefully uh, in the next, uh, the next couple of uh, weeks from this recording, as this episode comes out, we'll start seeing some improvement on the RSS feeds. Uh, so I ask for your patience on that. I, I understand the frustration. Believe me, as frustrated as you are as a listener, as the creator, it is extremely frustrating because it's, we have a level of separation because we're uh, working with the network here. So I ask for your patience with that, and hopefully all of that uh, will be settled uh, very, very soon. Now, all of that having been said, end of the day, I'm still Luke, and one thing which will never change 
here at Earth Destruction Directive is our focus of sharing my love and affection for Japanese giant monsters with all of you. So with that out of the way, let's get into some news. Godzilla vs. Kong has officially passed $100 million at the U.S. box office. This is the first film to do so since the quote-unquote pandemic era began in March of 2020. Now, the total box as of this recording is $100.1 million domestically. Add to that $342.4 million internationally for a total gross of $442.5 million. This places it third... Uh, overall in the MonsterVerse, ahead of King of the Monsters, but still, of course, behind Godzilla 2014 and Kong Skull Island. Still an incredible, uh, absolutely incredible achievement for this film, given the relative lack of success commercially in uh, of, uh, of Godzilla King of the Monsters, and then the uh, period in which it was released and the reduced capacities and, and all that stuff that we've had to deal with because of COVID restrictions on uh, film exhibition. Really, to cross $100 million is, a, is a, a milestone for this film, and I was very glad to see this news. Now, as of this recording, Godzilla vs. Kong is also now available for home media purchase, complete with some pretty swanky point-of-sale installations at Walmart. Very cool indeed. Seen a few, a few pictures of this on Twitter. Uh, very, very neat. Uh, I don't know that uh, I need a giant cardboard standee for Godzilla vs. Kong, but hey, you never know. I got my Blu-ray DVD combo, and I uh, got it in the mail the other day from Amazon, uh, and I must admit that holding that disc in my hand brought a really big smile to my face. Kind of the, uh, the accumulation of all of the tribulations with getting Godzilla vs. Kong released and then seeing it, and it's it's all come full circle now. So very, very uh, happy to have that in my collection. Uh, so please go check it out. Um, you can find all, all the all the major retailers are carrying it now. It's a, it's a big release. In Ultraman news, Ultraman Trigger is set to debut in Japan in a few weeks from now, in July. And we can now report that Subaraya has confirmed that Trigger will be available in the West on YouTube. Now, this report comes from UltramanGalaxy.com, which is uh, Subaraya's outlet for uh, Western fans. And according to, to that site, Trigger will air in a similar fashion to how Ultraman Z aired, meaning it will appear on YouTube shortly after airing in Japan with English subtitles, but will only be available for two weeks before rolling off. Now, my kids and I have had a lot of fun watching Z. Usually, it's every Sunday morning. And I'm definitely looking forward to watching Trigger with them as well. We'll have more on that as we get closer to the debut. But, uh, you know, with, with Super Rise, they've been doing the replay of Ultraman Z. They've kept all those episodes up. So you can get caught up on Ultraman Z now. But once they start with Trigger, you're going to have to be fast on the Trigger eh, in order to watch those before they roll off. So very, very cool. Now, in other Subaraya news, Gridman, the hyper agent, is coming to Blu-ray from Mill Creek on August the 17th here in the U.S. Gridman, of course, is the show which became the basis for Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. See episode 24 of this very podcast. If you're the right age, you probably remember that show. As well as the much more recent anime, SSSS.Gridman, and the just-wrapped-up follow-up, SSSS.Dynazenon. I am very excited to get Gridman in the collection. I managed to see a little bit of it last year on Subaraya's YouTube. They were, I guess, building up to the Japanese Blu-ray release. They were releasing some uh, episodes on, uh, on YouTube. And what struck me was that while Gridman was certainly way more serious in tone 
than Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. It still had a very strong kind of kid focus. It, the, the characters were all young. It wasn't like you think of like a normal Ultraman show with, uh, uh, you know, adults being the main characters. The kids were still the main characters. So I'll be very interested in seeing if that holds up for the entire series, if it keeps up that kid focus. So that's all I've got for now. Do you have any news about the stuff we talk about here on Earth Destruction Directive? Why don't you go ahead and send that in, Directive at yahoo.com, and I'll be sure to give you a shout-out here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be getting into not one, but two episodes of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episodes 26 and 27, entitled The Prince of Monsters, a.k.a. His Majesty Monster, The Monster Prince, and The Monster Highness, is a two-part episode. The first part aired on Tokyo Broadcast System on January the 8th, 1967, with part two following the following week of January 15th, 1967. Our director is Hajime Tsuburaya. Hajime, of course, the son of Eji Tsuburaya and was the head of Tsuburaya after the death of his father. Uh, sadly, Hajime himself would pass only three years later at the very young age of, nine, of uh, 41. Uh, Hajime directed many episodes for different Tsuburaya series during, uh, during this time. Our screenwriters, we have two of them. First is uh, Tensu Kinjo. Uh, now, Kinjo was one of the main writers for Ultra Q and actually the head writer for both Ultraman and Ultra 7 credited generally as one of the key minds behind the early days of the Ultra franchise. Now, tragically, Kinjo also died very young, actually died in an accident falling off of his roof. I don't, I think he was 39. Um, lovingly enough, the character of King Joe is named after Tetsu Kinjo. Uh, and our other writer is Bunzo Wakatsuki, who uh, wrote scripts for many different Tsuburaya shows, including Ultra 7, but also as varied uh, output as Fireman, Mighty Jack, and Mirror Man. As I said, this is actually a two-part episode, so we'll have one synopsis covering the entire story, and our story goes a little something like this. In Osaka, a young boy named Osamu calls himself his monster highness due to his affection, some might say bordering on obsession, with monsters. Osamu is teased by his classmates and chided by his mother, who wishes he would spend less time thinking about monsters and more time studying. Meanwhile, Professor Nakaya is leading an expedition on Johnson Island, accompanied by Arashi of the SSSP. On the island, in addition to deadly man-eating vines, they find the monster Gomera, a creature from the Mesozoic Age which is alive and well. Wanting to put the creature on display at the upcoming International Expo, the professor enlists the aid of the SSSP. 
Calling in a favor from the U.S., the SSSP tranquilizes Gomera with the UNG anesthetizing shot and prepares to airlift him to the expo. However, Gomera wakes up during the airlift and escapes, burrowing into the earth outside of Osaka. With all of Osaka on alert, Gomera appears on the outskirts of the city, where Osamu happens to be playing. Ultraman arrives, but finds himself overpowered by Gomera, who escapes back underground. During the struggle, Osamu finds the Beta Capsule on the ground. Osaka is evacuated as Gomera can appear at any time from underground. Captain Muramatsu orders a tracking beacon built so that when Gomera appears, they can tag him with a microtransmitter in order to trace his movements. Soon enough, Gomera emerges in the middle of the city and is met by fierce resistance from the JSDF and SSSP, who manage to not only tag him with the microtransmitter, but also sever his tail. Gomura retreats again, but this time they are able to track him, and he is headed right for Osaka Castle. The JSDF and SSSP ready the castle grounds for Gomura's attack, but the monster is able to push through their lines and smash the castle to pieces. Osamu, knowing that the Beta Capsule must be important to Ultraman, manages to get to the front lines and find Hayata, who uses the capsule to change again into Ultraman. Wounded and tired, Gomura is no match for Ultraman this time, and the monster is defeated. Hayata later gives Osamu an SSSP communicator, considering him to be an honorary member of the team, for his help with this case. Alright, this is definitely a milestone pair of episodes for, uh, for the series. It introduces a very, very popular monster, and is the only two-part episode, so I think this is definitely qualifies as a, as a milestone. So let's get uh, right on into the notes. Now, right at the beginning, uh, with Osamu and his schoolmates. Osamu is teased for believing in monsters. Now, I am always confused by this sort of dialogue in a science fiction show where monsters appear essentially every episode. How do these boys not believe in monsters? I mean, Ultraman has to fight monsters seemingly on a weekly basis. Perhaps the intent here is that Osamu simply takes his obsession with monsters too far, but that's not really how the dialogue bears this out. They, they just kind of chide him for believing in monsters. It's like, there, there are monsters here all the time. I, don't un- I never really understood that. That opening scene is also quite nice, as we get the first of several scenes set in then-contemporary Osaka, giving us a nice glimpse into the world of Japan in 1967. The sequences in and around Osamu's apartment are very appealing to me. They, they let us peek in on a time capsule of sorts to a different time and place. You know, but we get to compare the things that, you know, are similar to when we were Osamu's age to, to different. And of course, here in the West versus, you know, in Japan. So I always appreciate that stuff. Now on Johnson Island, and as an aside, that really seems to me that Kinjo, Kinjo and Wakatsuki were simply reaching for a common Western name, calling it Johnson Island. More on that in a little bit. One of the expedition is attacked by a man-eating plant. This is Suflan. This is, uh, uh, you know, the, the vampire vine plant. Eji Tsuburaya seemed to love his man-eating plants, didn't he? Uh, it's fun. It's a distinctly Showa type of creature. And given the Showa era's love of tropical islands, I mean, across the die kaiju board, when movies, TV shows, whatever, they, they love tropical islands, so the appearance of a, uh, of a vine that's man-eating, it's not only logical to me, it's welcomed. Uh, Suflan is one of those, those minor types of, uh, creatures that you can see popping up on any type of tropical island, right? Because man-eating vines, that's just a, that's a thing that happens on tropical islands in Japanese monster movies. 
About a third of the way through the first episode, Gomera makes his first appearance by bursting out of a mountain on Johnson Island. Now, beyond the classic setup of a monster hiding inside of a mountain, from a technical standpoint, I like this scene quite a bit. You can really see the scale of the miniatures being used. Weta Workshop, during their work on the Lord of the Rings films, they would use the term bigatures to refer to miniature models that were themselves physically quite large. The mountain here, to me, seems to qualify as a bigature, given that literally we see a wide shot of Gomera breaking out of it, which means that model has to be at least seven or eight feet tall for the suit actor to be inside to bust his way out. That's pretty impressive. That's like part set, part model to me. Gomer himself looks great. Now, as far as the Ultra Kaiju go, I always thought Gomera looked a bit less outlandish than some of his brethren, more akin to something you might see over in the Godzilla series. That really fits his origin as a Sorod of some kind, the ancient monster, as he's referred to. While the modern version of Gomera, they would clean him up and smooth the edges a bit, this initial iteration is actually very well executed. On my Mill Creek Blu-rays, you can clearly see the reddish markings on his horns, which previously were much harder to pick out on the old Mill Creek DVD set, so that's a nice touch as well. I have always wondered over the years what led to Gomera being as popular as he is, and I have some thoughts on that, but I have to say that at least part of that popularity is his strong overall design as a monster. He looks tough, he looks fierce, and he is ready for action from his first appearance. As an aside, uh, I mentioned the Mill Creek DVDs. If you go back and take a look at those and turn on the English dub, the monster's name is not Gomera. It sounds like Gora or Gahura. It's, kind of, it's pronounced a little bit differently and the sound mix is not great, but they, they definitely seem to drop the M. So it sounds kind of like Gora, which is an odd choice. I guess they were trying to avoid Gomorrah, you know, like the biblical city. So uh, just, just an oddity that comes from that old dub. The UNG anesthetizing shot, and uh, please note that exactly what UNG stands for is not indicated in the subtitles. It's created by Professor Smith at Washington University. Remember what I said about Kinjo and Watatsuki looking for a common Western name? <laughs> this is uh, this has got to be like a Western writer naming his Japanese character Sato or Tanaka, right? And I don't have any real issue with that. I mean, after all, certain surnames are simply just more common than others. Similarly, I'm assuming here that Washington University is supposed to be in Washington, D.C., rather than, you know, the University of Washington in the state of Washington. Again, just by going, you know, New York, Paris, you know, Smith, Johnson. Um, now, again, that said, I am totally willing to headcanon this into University of Washington due to the much closer geographical proximity between the state of Washington and Japan, then Japan and D.C. So, to me, it's University of Washington. Now, the anesthetizing shot itself is held in a tube, which has literally USA stamped on it in giant letters. <laughs> the SSSP, of course, a global organization, a running theme in the series, but this amused me to absolutely no end. When you absolutely, positively want your audience to be sure that this giant tranquilizer came from Japan's ally, the USA... And, of course, naturally, it's Arashi, the SSSP's marksman. He uh, shoots Gomera and hits him with both shots. So, you know, Arashi staying on target, literally. Now, the airlift operation for Gomera, naturally, brings me back to King Kong's airlift from a few years earlier in King Kong vs. Godzilla. Uh, maybe it's just me, I think this might be universal, but there is something just inherently amusing anytime you have to move a giant monster by air. 
here the Jet VTOLs are up to the challenge, and, you know, I, I thought it was nice. They actually showcased a variety of operations which can be handled by the SSSP's fleet. Uh, they seem uh, a bit more believable than the balloons from King Kong vs. Godzilla, or even Doctor Who's helicopters from King Kong Escapes. Now, of course, Gomorrah escapes, and after he escapes, uh, the SSSP, they set up their command center in Osaka Tower. Now, I was not familiar with Osaka Tower before I uh, viewed these episodes, so I thought I'd give a little bit of background. Now, Osaka Tower was a radio and observation tower actually built in 1966, so it was pretty new when this episode was filmed. In fact, this episode, if you think about it, aired at the very beginning of 67, was likely filmed in 66. So that means the tower was less than a year old when they were shooting there. Wonder if it was even open. Maybe they were filming there before it opened. Hmm, a good question. Uh, now, what's really surprising to me is that Osaka Tower was actually built next to the corporate headquarters of Asahai Broadcasting Company, ABC, while Ultraman, of course, aired over on Tokyo Broadcasting System. So they were not the same. It wasn't Ultraman's uh, uh, network that built Os that had Osaka Tower and used it, but they still filmed there. I thought that was really interesting. Now, the tower stood until 2009 when it was demolished following ABC moving their offices to a new location in Osaka. Osaka Tower stood at 160 meters tall, about 525 feet. Now, for reference, Tokyo Tower, beloved landmark for all Daikaiju fans, stands at 332 meters, or 1,092 feet, so a little, uh, just under twice as tall as Osaka Tower, but still very cool to see Osaka Tower play a, a fairly prominent role in, uh, in the back half of episode one, as well as all of episode two of, uh, of, of these episodes. While at Osaka Tower, Professor Nakaya expresses guilt for the destruction which Gomer will cause, as it was his insistence on bringing him to the expo which caused the entire situation. Now, the captain quickly shuts it down, but I did like this little bit of character from the professor, type of scientific moral quandary we see in Daikaiju quite frequently. Does the value of discovery to science and in this particular case, the value to international relations, outweigh the potential dangers. We don't often get much into this sort of territory on the TV side of the coin, and all things considered, this really there's not that much attention paid to it here, but including this exchange, I thought that was a, a good call overall. Later we see Osamu and his friend playing Ultraman before Gomura appears from underground. The kids playing, and their subsequent panicked response to Gomura's appearance, Strikes me as very sincere. Kids play in all sorts of ways, and when something external is fresh in their minds, be it a movie or a TV show or some event, that tends to be the basis for their play. So, naturally, it makes sense to play Ultraman in this situation, especially uh, Osamu, you know, who's already obsessed with monsters, and now um, they, they are all... Monsters are the big news story right now. So I, I like this touch a lot, and again... It may just be because I'm a father, so I think about these things, but I thought it was a, a sincerely portrayed uh, depiction of, of play. Gomer's appearance in Osaka has some, some great scale work. Uh, as I said, he comes up near where Osamu is playing, so Osamu hides near a bulldozer, and then we see Gomer knocking around the construction vehicles, kicking them around, immediately informing us uh, of his size. So I, I thought that was a nice use of uh, the, the props um, and the set decoration to, to give us that, that sense of scale and size. The battle between uh, Ultraman and Gomera, it's down and dirty. 
Gomera fights not too dissimilarly to Godzilla from this era with a lot of tail chops. I mean a lot of tail chops. Ultraman just gets battered back and forth. It's like he ended up at the boss battle before he finished grinding to the next level in a role-playing game. Ultraman is so knocked around, in fact, that he can't even manage to fire the Specium Ray before Gomera escapes. The simple fact that Ultraman is defeated and the monster escapes must have been a shock to audiences who, at this time, have seen Ultraman prevail 25 times in a row. I'm sure that his failure to defeat Gomera is another aspect of Gomera's lasting popularity amongst the Daikaiju pantheon. And I do want to add that Osamu finding the beta capsule in this scene is in full service of the next episode, and I have my suspicions about that plot point, but I'll cover those in a little bit later. The second episode opens with a recap of the first episode, which is the only time we will have such a recap in this series. Again, making sense, this being the only two-parter. Also, the title sequence uses the phrase featuring ancient monster Gomera rather than the appearance of, like we would normally expect. Again, that makes sense, since this is not his first appearance. Now, much of the second episode, upon this viewing, this really struck me. It seems designed to pad the story out to two episodes. We have a couple of sequences which seem longer than they need to be, suggesting that they are runtime sort of additions. The captain at one point gives detailed orders to each member of the team, while we get not one, but two different scenes of Usamu's family staying in their apartment rather than evacuating from the city. There's also a scene of the captain talking on the phone to the UN, requesting an additional anesthetizing shot, which the UN is then unable to provide. And additionally, the scene of Osamu returning the beta capsule involves him first talking to the police, then being escorted to the front, where he then talks to Hayata. All these individual scenes, they don't sound like much, but in the end, they do add up to push that runtime out a bit. This is what I meant by the motivations of Osamu and the beta capsule in part one. It makes a good cliffhanger if you're pushing this to two episodes. And it does allow for additional scenes to be shot to fill in uh, episode two. But it is, in and of itself, not entirely necessary for the story. You could tell the overall story of Gomorrah in one episode, but we would have lost out on some of the character and procedural aspects in the episodes as shot by doing that. So, and you can wait for yourself. I think it's it's there, but at the same time, it's not a bad example of it. So I'll, I'll you know, why don't you guys watch and tell me what you think? Now, some of these scenes, as I said, they do have some really nice moments in them, and th that for that I am glad. The Mars One Three Three gun makes an appearance, and you guys know at this point I am always happy to see callbacks to the other parts of the SSSP arsenal. Ide gets to build a tracker for the microtransmitter to track Gomer's location, and Ide's. Obvious glee at being tasked with building some new gizmo is a treat. One nice thing in the apartment, we get to see Osamu's toys of Ultraman and various Ultra Kaiju. A wonderful bit of real-world kid identification. And perhaps the most intriguing of all these scenes is during that phone call with the UN, the captain speaks English. I thought this was fascinating. Now on the Blu-ray, this is still subtitled, albeit in italics. But it is really, really neat and really something to see the captain conversing in English for a scene ultimately that doesn't go anywhere. The UN does not have another anesthetizing shot to send them, but he still makes his plead in English. I really like that bit. The rest of the second episode's all action, sure to please most Ultra fans. Gomera's first scene where he arrives in the heart of Osaka shows off some really fantastic model work, 
as we get to see him wade through Osaka like it was a feature film. We got something similar a few episodes back with Telesodon. So it's uh, this one's in daylight, so it reminds me more of like a Showa type of film. I always think about the, the sunlight scenes in a, in a Showa Godzilla film. Given the time and budgetary restraints of this being done for TV, this scene is top-notch. Now, when they blow Gomorrah's tail off, that was a surprise, too, because normally you only expect Ultraman to be able to inflict that level of damage to a monster, not the JSDF and the SSSP on their own. It does really put over the threat level of Gomorrah that it takes the combined might of the JSDF, the SSSP, and eventually Ultraman to vanquish him. In addition, Gomorrah's severed tail flopping about and itself needing to be destroyed helps, too. Uh, as a monster, Gomorrah is really put over as a big-time threat in these episodes. And I, I think that, again, is part of the re reason that I think he's become as popular as he has, is just how tough he really is and how far he pushes uh, our heroes. The finale is set at Osaka Castle. And much like o uh, Osaka Tower, I thought, well, let's get some background here. Osaka Castle actually has a very long and rich history, dating back to its initial construction in 1583. It played a key role in the Tokugawa shogunate era, then in the, the Mijai restoration period, and even as late as World War II, it was actually home to one of Japan's largest military armories. In fact, it was bombed by the uh, U.S. in World War II. The castle and its numerous outbuildings today have been rebuilt as a museum, although the exterior is a reproduction of its Edo-era appearance. Now, needless to say, in the real world, Osaka Castle was not leveled by a giant monster in 1967. But between this and Osaka Tower, there's a great deal of, uh, quote-unquote, location work in these episodes, definitely taking advantage of setting the story in and around Osaka. Now, as a side note, the castle was leveled by Godzilla and Anguirus in Godzilla Raids Again back in 1955, and was the site of the initial encounter between Gamera and Barrigan in 1966's Gamera vs. Barrigan. So... Uh, you know, Osaka getting a little bit of love. Not, not always Tokyo. The battle at Osaka Castle itself is a fitting set piece. First with the JSDF and SSSP trying in vain to hold Gomorrah back from the historical landmark, to Gomorrah leveling the main castle tower to the ground, to Ultraman arriving and saving the day. As a sequence, it just builds and builds. It's really something. Gomorrah, without his tail, definitely at a disadvantage this time around. He, in fact, tries to tail-chop Ultraman, obviously to no effect. My kids were very amused by that. And despite that, despite losing one of his main attacks, Ultraman still has to work hard to finally defeat Gomorrah, bringing the threat to a close. Once more, Gomorrah is, is really made to look powerful and tough, and uh, that you know it, it serves the story well to have him be uh, this dangerous. The discussion between Ide and Arashi following the battle is rather poignant. Arashi says that what they humanity, did to Gomorrah was cruel, waking him up and making him an exhibit in their expo. But of course, that doesn't change the fact that once he was awoken and threatened human lives, Gomorrah became a threat which had to be addressed. I also like the discussion about history. The loss of Osaka Castle and its 500 years of history is a loss, but they make the point that Gomorrah had a history of 150 million years, which deserved to be preserved as well. Now, we don't linger on this scene. I must admit, though, it made an impression on me after this viewing, for sure. The final scene with Hayata and Osamu, where Osamu claims to be supposedly studying hard while drawing a picture of Ultraman and Gomorrah, reminds me of the sort of funny stinger ending you might get on an episode of classic Star Trek. Uh, you know, that one. And as an aside, I watch these episodes uh, with some of my kids, not all of them, 
And all of them were really impressed with Usamu's really well-drawn picture of Ultraman and Gomera. I mean, they're like, I could never draw that well. It's like, I don't know that the kid really drew that well either, but, you know, it was, it was worth noting. Now, overall, the Monster Highness, it's a standout pair of episodes for Ultraman, being the only two-parter, but also introducing, as we said, one of the most enduring and popular of the Ultra Kaiju with Gomera. There's plenty of action and special effects, but the added breathing room, well, introducing a touch of padding, also gives the creative team some space to have some additional character moments which would have been sacrificed if this was a done-in-one. It's definitely a highlight of the series, and it's really not surprising that Gomera has gone on to be as popular as he is today, given that this was his debut and introduction. Now, if you'd like to own these episodes, you have a few options. The Mill Creek Blu-rays, both the standard and steelbook editions, are available for purchase. Um, you, Amazon is uh, Mill Creek's uh, preferred vendor, I think, but you can get them also, I think, a deep discount, just about any place. Now, these, of course, are in Japanese only with English subtitles. And I found out you can also purchase episodes on Amazon Prime, either a la carte or by the season. And, of course, you can purchase the series digitally on Mill Creek's digital service movie Spree. If you buy the Blu-ray set, you will uh, get the, uh, the movie Spree digital copies included along with that, uh, that Blu-ray set, which is very nice as well. If you want to get the episodes in their English dub form, you will have to go out and see if you can find the old Mill Creek DVDs, which are now, unfortunately, long out of print. They do pop up on the secondary market. Now, if you just want to watch the episodes, they are streaming on ShoutFactoryTV.com as part of their Toku Shoutsu program block, so you can check them out there. All right, so that's, uh, that's all I've got on uh, the Monster Highness. What do all of you out there think? Uh, do you, uh, are you a Gomera fan? Do you, uh, like Gomera? Do you not like Gomera? What do you think about these episodes? Did you watch them when you were a kid? Have you discovered them only now, uh, when they've been released here on, on disc in the West? Email me, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I'd love to have a discussion about it. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. There's something like 115,000 English language podcasts in the world, and no doubt hundreds of them are aimed at the comic book genre. There are sci-fi comic podcasts. Horror comic podcasts. War comic podcasts! But do you know what we need? Two guys crazy enough to combine those fields and make a podcast of their very own? Yes. It's the answer to a question no one asked, so that's why we are answering it. Such a gaping hole in the podcast landscape must be filled post-haste. Did you really just use the word post-haste? The Weird Warriors podcast covers the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll also check out other horror and war comics published by DC, Marvel, Charlton, and any other targets that may present themselves to us. I have the war books, and he has the horror books. So if you're ready to take a nice, relaxing look at the hell of war in comic book form from the age of the caveman to the distant future, then report for duty by subscribing to the Weird Warrior Podcast, brought to you by the Brothers Flea, wherever fine podcasting provisions are issued. Vampires. Aliens. Dinosaurs. Alien dinosaurs. There's something for everyone. General Sherman said war is hell, but do you know what else is? weird for our purposes yes so tune in to the weird warrior podcast today do it that's an order yes sir don't call me sir i work for a living but we're not getting paid for this Dang. 
Well, I'm Max. And I'm Rich. And we're going to be bringing you the Weird Warriors podcast, where we will promise to make war no more. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. It's now time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also get in touch with me on Facebook or on Twitter. And I guess now you can also leave a comment on YouTube. So listen to the outro to the show and uh, see how you can get in touch with us. So we've got a couple of emails we're going to get through today. Still have a few more in the sack, but I figured we got to start chipping away at these. So uh, this one comes from our loyal listener, Rich S., and it is simply titled GVK. And Rich writes, Hi, Luke. I saw Godzilla vs. Kong yesterday, April the 3rd. I listened to Earth, Destructive, Earth Destruction Directive Guide in episode 25 today, so here are my thoughts. The overall plot may have seemed a little too much to unpack for non-Monsterverse fans. GVK is almost a Marvel-style film because of the call, the callbacks to prior movies, but I enjoyed it immensely. All right, Rich, I'm going to stop there for a sec. You know, that's kind of the way that tentpole movies work nowadays, right? Is everything has to be building up to something, building up from something. There has to be... You can't have just movies that stand on their own. If anything, Marvel definitely made that the norm, that now it just understood that everything has to be a cinematic universe. But even things like, you know, you don't necessarily think about them as in the same way, but like Fast and the Furious is the same way. That there's items that happen in those that are callbacks to previous entries, and if you haven't seen all of them, you're going to be like, okay, I don't understand the relationship, why these characters have this antagonistic relationship or whatever the deal is. That, that's a real good point. Rich continues, I had to bite my tongue from saying, dig Kong, dig, when the chopper sent Kong down to the Antarctic snow. That's a really, really on point. Yeah, Kong, uh, Kong the Arctic, King Kong escapes. Pretty much a one-to-one correlation. At work, a friend of mine would ever so often ask, so who will win? To this I would answer that Godzilla and Kong, of course, would fight, but then would need to team up against the third villain monster. Then my friend, thinking of King of the Monsters, would say, it's going to be Mechagidra. In a way, he was right. That's, that's a very good point. It was obvious to me that the big villain monster would be Mechagodzilla, since I unfortunately came across the Mechagodzilla Funko Pop toy on Amazon last month. Don't the toys always spoil it? Ain't that the truth? You gotta avoid the toy listings, so you always do spoil it. Knowing that, it seemed very obvious how the final battle would unfold. I said to my brother, who was enjoying the film with me, Watch, now Kong will fall to Godzilla, then Godzilla will get beat up by uh, Mechagodzilla, then Kong will come back and save the day. Don't know exactly how I knew that, it just seemed to me the Hollywood way. Anyway, that's my feeling so far after one viewing. Take care, Rich S. Rich, thank you very much for writing in first off, and yes, absolutely. Definitely the the Hollywood-style ending there with uh, the way you put over both guys like that. And, you know, to me, it's, yeah, in a way, it was kind of predictable, but I was okay with that. I say it all the time over and Get Back to the Wrestling. It's not rocket science, it's pro wrestling, and it's kind of the same way here. I'm okay without it being, you know, something that's going to blow my mind, because sometimes the obvious choice is the right choice. So I was very happy with the way that that panned out. And, you know, it, it to me, again, it gets back to some of the things I talked about with my brother, you know, the natural world versus the artificial world, and you know, Godzilla and Kong are, are rivals, but they're still both part of the natural order, whereas Mechagodzilla is something uh, other, outside, alien, right? And so he has to be removed, because he, he is the greater threat. I'm glad you enjoyed the movie, Rich. Hopefully uh, you got a chance to pick it up on home media so you can enjoy it at the house. And uh, uh, thank you very much for listening, and as always, thank you very much for writing in. 
Our next email comes from Tim Elliott. And uh, Tim writes, Monkey Punches Lizard 2021. I think I have that movie, too. (laughs) And Tim writes, Hello, Luke. Excellent coverage of Godzilla vs. Kong. My wife and I ventured out into the night to view the film in the wild. Oh, that's uh, that's very adventurous nowadays. I'm not going to bury the lead. I was very disappointed in the film. The movie felt cobbled together from a Godzilla film and the sequel to Skull Island. In a way, this is a sequel to Skull Island because Godzilla feels like a guest star. The human story is weak, and I know folks are saying, but you get to see the two fight. Well, if all we wanted to see was the two Titans trounce each other, then just produce a 30-minute demo reel of the CG fight. I thought the fights were fun, but this film feels like it is a victim of being a summer blockbuster, a little bloated and short on intelligence. I felt like I was watching a Michael Bay Transformers film. That is not a compliment. All right, let's, let's take a look at this. First off, you're well within your rights to be disappointed in the film. As a filmgoer, you you, you pay your money, you're allowed to have your opinions either way, so that doesn't bother me in the least. As far as the idea of it feeling cobbled together, I can kind of see that, because you are taking, yes, two films in the same universe, but they really didn't have much to do with each other. You're taking, uh, really, King of the Monsters and Skull Island and making sequels to both of them. And those two films really didn't have much to do with each other. I have often leveled the same sort of criticism at most of the other big tentpole movies, at the Marvel movies for sure. I, you know, I am known on the Two True Freaks Network. I'm not a guy who is one of these guys that's absolutely in love with everything Marvel uh, Cinematic Movie, Cinematic Universe puts out. I felt a lot, apparently, of the ones that people just really go crazy, go nuts over have been, I have not really enjoyed because they are just, to me, to me, they feel perfunctory. It's like, okay, here's all the things, and now we smash the big pieces together for three hours, and we're done. So I, I kind of get where you're coming from with that. To me, I thought it served both of them a little bit better because it's not it's not a direct sequel to either. It deals with the fallout of both, but it's not really picking up direct plot threads. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. It, it's dealing with the situations, but it's not like, okay, you know, we didn't get the scenes with Jonah. We didn't get the, uh, and you're going to get to this later in the email, we didn't get some you know, specific follow-up, but some of the same characters come back, but they're not picking up on the, the conflicts from the, either of the earlier films. They're moving on to, to different stuff. So, Tim continues, I felt Kyle Chandler was wasted. He must have filmed all his scenes in a day. He is so disconnected from his daughter and the rest of the film. Now, as far as, let me jump in here. I want to say there is more stuff with Kyle Chandler, but that ended up cut. That they were really pushing to get the film under two hours, and that uh, my understanding is that a lot of the stuff with um, um, with Doctor Doctor Russell was cut out of the film. So I don't know if that'll ever show up. We get a special edition or something like that, but I think that may be part of it. And that's that is a, that is a, a good point. He doesn't have really a lot to do, especially compared to the previous film. I think originally he had more to do. The trio of Millie Bobby Brown, Brian Tyree Henry, and Jul- Julian Dennison are in a Scooby-Doo episode. No argument there. I, I really think that storyline itself is the weak point of the story. Um, reading the novelization, I continue to think that portion of the story is the weakest part of the film. And I, I don't have a lot I can argue with that. I, I'm just, it, you know, the character of, of Bernie never really did anything for me. Uh, it's, yeah, that, I don't, I don't think that part works particularly well, but I thought the other parts worked better, and I think that helps. 
Alexander Skarsgård is a blank page, and Demian Bircher is all but twirling his mustache. Well, yeah, but he's the bad guy. I know. I mean, it doesn't bother me, you know, about bad guys being bad guys. I, I get the criticism. I get your point. I don't know. It just didn't didn't strike me the same way. I like Skarsgård. I, I thought that, again, I think there was more of his stuff that, it ends up in the novelization that gets left on the cutting room floor, stuff about him and his brother and the previous expedition to Hollow Earth that his brother led. I think that stuff would have been better if it had been left in, but again, I understand they have different motivations, right? You've got commercial and artistic motivations that are at odds with each other, and part of the direction was make, you know, that, that Adam Wingard evidently really wanted the movie to be two hours, and, and so some of that stuff got cut. So I, I, I can get where you're coming from with there. Let's see, so uh, Tim continues, I am a huge fan of the Godzilla King of the Monsters and Kong Skull Island films. The characters in those films were smart and capable. Monarch and the military worked together to solve problems. The humans made smart decisions and were good at their jobs. Compare David Stratum or Aisha Hines with any military or monarch character in Godzilla vs. Uh, Kong. The difference is night and day. I will agree with that one. I thought Monarch was portrayed way better in King of the Monsters than they were in Godzilla vs. Kong. We do get some of the scientific stuff with Monarch, but as far as the depiction of all the different Monarch scientists and their military operatives, I thought King of the Monsters did a better job with that, so I'll, I'll agree with you on that one, too. The film is so focused on getting the two monsters together, it doesn't take the time to explore any of the plot threads it begins. Why is Godzilla killing the other Titans? Well, part of that, actually, Tim, again, that is, he doesn't, he's not killing the other Titans. And admittedly, they don't make this clear. He's keeping the other Titans in line. So they, this is a situation where I think they want you to go get the tie-in material, because they talk about this specifically in the Godzilla Dominion tie-in comic, that if a, a Titan comes in is like trying to sh- shake up the order, Godzilla will go and fight him, but otherwise he is actually helping other Titans or making sure that they're all right. There's a scene again in the novelization. I keep coming back to that because that's all we have to go on as far as the uh, extra scenes or, you know, air quotes up to the mic deleted scenes. Um, but there's a whole scene where he goes and helps a Titan that has been captured by a group that's looking to exploit uh, Titan, like, um, like black market Titan biology. Uh, so, yeah, again, is it fair? No, because that stuff's not on the screen. So it's, it's, it is a fair statement to say that, ask those questions because it's confusing. Why were those scenes not left in the film? Well, again, we, we, may, not never, we may never know the exact reason. So we have to just kind of, you know, we have to use our, our headcanon and fan wank it a little bit. And that's, that, that's always been part of the game, unfortunately. Uh, let's see. Did Kong's people build the underground Hollow Earth civilization? How intelligent were they? Does Kong live off the radiation like the other Titans? If not, why? What happened to What happened to Godzilla's increased power level? I wanted a smart, thoughtful film like the others, and what I got was a dumb monster fight. I feel like there is a movie missing here. They should have given Kong his sequel and explored the Hollow Earth storyline, then have them meet in the next film. It all feels a little rushed. My final thought is Mechagodzilla has too little screen time. They hint that King Ghidorah's DNA was taking over the robot. Let's explore that more. Sorry to sound like I'm trashing the film. I don't mean to, and I don't hate the film, but I need to express my disappointment with the movie and why. Um, and what better place than through a grouchy email? I am still digesting the film, and it might change my opinion given time. Thanks for listening to my gripes. Keep them stopping. Tim Elliott, host, co-host of Third Degree Burn. Tim, thank you very much for writing in. I, again, 
I'm I'm right there with you on a, on a lot of these criticisms. I, I, the film is not perfect by any stretch. It's not even my favorite film in the series. But I, you know, I, I, different viewers are going to get different things out of it and are going to have different expectations. You know, my uh, my father did not like the movie either for a lot of the same criticisms you had. So they're, they're totally legitimate. And I'm glad to uh, that, that you're able to express yourself and have an outlet to, to express why the film didn't work for you. You know, if we all agreed on everything, it'd be really boring. That's all I had to say. So, uh, um, I said, hopefully, maybe the next time you watch it, knowing what you're going to get, uh, you'll have a better experience. And if not, hey, you know what? They make they make 31 flavors of ice cream. Because some people out there like crappy ice cream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said it. Come at me. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Baskin-Robbins people are going to be going to be jumping down my throat now. I am just kidding. All ice cream is awesome. That's that's just the way it is. Thank you very much for your email, Tim. Uh, social media, likes, shares, retweets, all that good stuff for the last episode of Earth Destruction Directive, where we talked about Raiga, God of the Monsters, came from Fanholes Podcast, Derek W. Crabb of History of Comics on Film, the Monster Island Film Vault, Crystal Lady Jessica, two true freaks, Max Reed Comics, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. Gene, Gene, the podcasting machine, Gene Hendricks, Anthony Wendell, the Weird Warriors podcast. Maddie, Mothra S, Jimmy from NASA, Jimmy! Jimmy! Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, Big Bad Ben, Willa Zilla Prime, shout out to Willa Zilla Prime, that's a new one, haven't seen them on the Twitter uh, before. Christopher Warden. Bob Hansen and Brian Sivar. Thank you very much, everybody, for your social media support. Definitely appreciate it. Everything out there helps get the word out for Earth Destruction Directive, and it is appreciated. All right, so we have reached the end of another episode of Earth Destruction Directive, and so you know what that means. We have to always be looking forward, forward to what comes next. And what is coming next? Well, we are switching things up. We're not going to be talking about um, Godzilla, we're not going to be talking about Ultraman, we are going to that other popular gi- giant monster star, we are talking about Gamera, and the next film we are covering is Gamera 2, Attack of Legion, which in my mind will almost always be Gamera 2, Advent of Legion, because that is what the film was called when we first got our bootleg copies on VHS over here in the U.S. So, uh, very much looking forward to this, have not seen... Gamera 2 in, in a, quite a few years, actually. Uh, now that I have the Arrow Gamera Blu-ray set, I'm very interested in, in checking that one out on that 4K restoration, and I'm really sitting down with it. And uh, it, I, I remember really liking Legion uh, when it first came out, to the point that I think I liked it best of the three. So I'll be interested to see if my opinion is still as high of it as it was uh, back when it originally came out. So if uh, anybody wants to uh, break out that Arrow set or, or one of their old ADV DVDs or, or even ADV VHS, I think, um, how it was back there in the day, uh, and check that out before we cover it, we would really appreciate that. want to thank everybody for listening. Thank everyone again for their support. Uh, also, of course, you need to take a moment to say, just a reminder, Earth Destruction Directive, no matter all the changes here, it is for everyone. So if you uh, get any amount of joy from Japanese giant monsters, from any of this stuff that we talk about, you are welcome to be a part of the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. And uh, don't feel like that, you know, maybe because you're a newer fan or, or whatever have you, that you don't belong. And if, if you want to send an email, you want to comment, you want to say something, by all means, 
you know, we, we may disagree, you know, like Tim and I, you may disagree on something, but, you know, if you can give me a thoughtful opinion, I'm all for it. You know, it's a, let, let's bring some civil interaction back to, uh, to giant monsters, not just immediately start fighting and blasting apart buildings and hitting each other with weapons, right? Just a little bit, a little bit of civil discourse. But uh, anyway, but again, all are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive if you want to be part of the show. So that is all I got for now. Uh, please, everybody, go check out the YouTube page. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive on YouTube and you'll find it. Um, and uh, you know, subscribe would, would really help me out. I'm glad every, I, excuse me, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, this episode, taking a look at Ultraman and the debut of Gomera. Hope everybody comes back next time for Gamera 2. And I uh, hope everyone out there is, um, is uh, staying safe, staying healthy as things start changing. We get into summer, you know, kind of everybody's situations are different. I know my personal situation is starting to change a little bit. So hope everyone is doing okay on that front. And uh, please come back next time. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2truefreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at Ljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, Downloaded from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. <laughs>